Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Advances in the Treatment of Metastatic Prostate Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have over 305 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we have international participants from Albania, Australia, Belgium, Canada, Croatia, India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. And it's a real credit to all of you that you're spending the next hour with us. Today's uh, program is supported by Clovis Oncology, Inc., Pfizer, and a grant from Genentech. And we thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today. And um, I want to begin, um, before we begin actually our, with our speakers, um, I'd like to have, ask you a few questions um, before we actually have the speakers begin talking. So um, I'm going to start by asking you just a few questions. Um, so the first question is, so on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five, the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer, including the role of precision medicine. Number one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted treatments in the treating in, in the in treating metastatic prostate cancer. Again, one is the highest rating, and five is the lowest rating. And the third question is: I know the importance of clinical trials for metastatic prostate cancer. And again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the fourth question is, I know how to manage metastatic prostate cancer treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know updates on the treatment and care of bone metastases in metastatic prostate cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And another question. I know the role of physical activity for metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. Okay, I want to thank you all. It really helps us to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. And Dr. Sloven is attending physician Genitourinary Oncology Service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Wall College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven will be addressing advances in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19, the role of precision medicine, chemotherapy and targeted treatments, updates on clinical trials, new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer, including bone metastases, and tips to manage side effects, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. 
Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and welcome, everyone. I'm rather tasked today to try to answer as much as I can uh, in a very short period of time. And what I'm hoping to do is at least give you some information that will be helpful to your current condition or conditions, whatever it is or whatever they are. Uh, in general, I just want to let everybody know that there are so many treatments in prostate cancer from diagnosis to later on in the disease that I always tell people there's absolutely no need for anybody to be as anxious as they used to be many years ago. Let me start first by making a very clear distinction between patients who present initially with disease that has gone beyond the confines of the prostate gland and has gone, for example, to lymph nodes or to bone. We call them non-castrate because they're not under the influence of hormonal therapy. And these are patients who, at the time of diagnosis, would benefit from a variety of different treatments. It used to be that when patients uh, had disease that we considered to be metastatic at diagnosis, it was a very hopeless situation. And I'm very pleased to say that we have so many treatments now for patients who present with disease outside the gland that we are really making significant strides, including improvements in quality of life as well as other parameters that we measure. So for patients who come in, there's no less than about five different approaches to somebody who comes in with disease at the time of diagnosis. Uh, we know that androgen deprivation therapy, that could be as an injection into the buttocks or under the skin of the abdomen, works by reducing testosterone which feeds the cancer. But is that enough? And I would say that if somebody is very frail, older, that should be more than enough. But in a much more robust person who has very few by way of medical issues, we have a whole compendium of new drugs uh, that can be used to treat in this scenario. Of course, depending on a variety of other factors such as medical problems and activity levels and perhaps age, uh, a discussion should always be made with the physician and the patient regarding what might be more compatible with the patient's quality of life and perhaps provide fewer side effects. So we know that if somebody comes in with greater than four bone metastases that you can see on imaging, there are data to support the use of the addition of a chemotherapy drug, docetaxel, to first-line uh, androgen deprivation therapy. And that's been shown to control the disease very effectively. People for whom I would recommend the use of chemotherapy uh, might include people with a very large tumor burden, meaning a lot of disease seen on scans, somebody, somebody who is symptomatic, meaning they don't feel well, they're not eating, or somebody who is in pain just in, in the whole total body where they just don't feel well. And we've seen remarkable responses and durability of responses. Uh, there are two or three, excuse me, other what we call anti-androgens, which are, again, medications, oral medications that continue to block the source of testosterone. One is called enzalutamide, its relative apalutamide, and another drug called abiraterone. These are oral hormonal agents. They work in a very similar manner, but there are nuances and they can be used in the same situation. So somebody who does not want chemotherapy or whose disease is fairly uh, limited in terms of metastases, any of these drugs can be used. And it's really up to the decision of the physician as to whether he or she thinks that one is better over the other because they can have differing side effects and there might be a predilection of um, some uh, toxicity in an older versus a younger person. Now, what happens if this doesn't work? Let's say the patient has been on treatment and now the PSA begins to rise despite having been on hormonal therapy and maybe one or two of these. We now will refer to patients who have castrate-resistant disease, and it doesn't mean that you just have to have disease that's gone everywhere else. We have patients who have had rising PSAs after surgery or radiation with PSA as the only manifestation of their 
disease relapse, for example, and these patients may be treated with hormonal therapy. But what if the hormonal therapy doesn't work and your skin still looks nice and clean? That's where other drugs that are can be given, which include the drugs apalutamide and enzalutamide. Now, these, again, are all anti-androgens. They all fall into a family of drugs that work against the target molecule that really incites the cancer, which is called the androgen receptor. Now, your doctors are all aware of these drugs. They are very standard drugs, and they can be given either in somebody who's newly diagnosed and has progressive disease or becomes resistant to therapy later on in the disease cycle. Anytime a patient is either newly diagnosed or has progression of disease, clinical trials play a pivotal role. Why? Because sometimes we are using standard drugs in a different way. We can use them on a different schedule or use them in combination with biologic agents or other agents that may target the cancer. And sometimes doing a combination of the two drugs or even three drugs may offer very significant benefit. So one should always be aware that the clinical trials are not, quote, unquote, for guinea pigs, unquote. I hear this quite a bit, oh, I don't want to be the guinea pig. Ninety percent of the time, this is a, a clinical trial that will afford you the opportunity of moving a drug that we know has been approved and used with tremendous success, particularly later on in the disease, but we're bringing it earlier, and it may have be even more beneficial earlier than it was later because there's less disease. So all of these have been used to really the patient's benefit. Now, when we are treating patients with cancer, whether they're on hormonal therapy or they have progressed through standard therapies and have worsening disease, it's always important to have people involved in palliative care. Now, what does that mean? It, it has a very bad reputation. People think of palliative care as end-of-life care. Palliative care refers to having people involved from the time of diagnosis until the time that your cancer becomes more symptomatic. These are people within the community, the doctor's community, essentially, and the hospital or office community, depending on where you go, that will provide you with information or provide you with care throughout the entire continuum of your disease. If you have back pain, well, maybe there's a rehab specialist who will help you with your backache. Uh, if you have persistent pain, there's a radiation oncologist. Uh, what if you uh, you need uh, an intervention for a slipped disc or you know a herniated disc? Well, then there's somebody maybe from anesthesia pain who can give you an epidural uh, injection. So having people be part of your care from the beginning is extremely important. It does not mean that if we talk about palliative care that this is an end-of-life issue. It's really to intercede with any intercurrent issues that may come along during your uh, your treatment lifetime. And if it turns out that you need to see a podiatrist because you have a bunion, that's part of palliative care as well. Now, there at this year's uh, uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, there were a lot of updates that were really reaffirmations that a lot of the drugs that have been approved for prostate cancer, both very early or late in the disease, still have benefit many years out. And so I'm very pleased to say that a lot of the drugs that many of you have seen that have already come out in the prostate armamentarium have actually been shown to still maintain their uh, anti-tumor benefits. So that's really something very, very important uh, that was very, very pleased. There are a lot of new treatments that are en route to coming out. And I think it's very important. I, I, I keep getting uh, asked questions about imaging and is there a way to know if, if a person's cancer is uh, present earlier or later. Many of you have called uh, your doctors and asked about what we call PSMA imaging. PSMA is prostate-specific membrane antigen. It's a molecule that's on cancer cells. And there are new imaging modalities that are using a variety of different agents to target disease cells that are floating around that may have P 
PSMA on their surface. So both uh, UCLA and UCSF, that's University of California, uh, San Francisco, and University of California, Los Angeles, have had approvals from the Food and Drug Administration for using what we call PET, positron emission tomography, imaging against PSMA. And right now, it is being used before and after prostatectomy to look for disease that may not be seen by conventional imaging, such as bone scan or CAT scan or MRI. We have learned through a recent publication that in somebody who is newly diagnosed, uh, an imaging modality known as a multi-parametric MRI is actually complementary to using the PET imaging against PSMA. So each of them provides information that the other one does not, and the two together seem to be very important in helping people determine where the discrete areas of disease involvement is in the prostate, uh, in the pre prostatectomy evaluation. In post-prostatectomy, the idea of using these scans is to determine what patients may benefit from salvage radiation. For example, if you use it and you find there's disease in, in a lymph node that's in the chest or a lesion in the bone, that automatically would tell you that this is not a good candidate for someone who should get radiation to the area where the prostate had been, largely because there's disease already outside the gland. Other things to keep in mind is the role of genomic profiling, and there are so many different companies out there trying to help people determine whether or not it's uh, whether or not their their cancer is going to behave in a more aggressive or lethal manner versus that which is very indolent. I can tell you right now that the new standards are that if you have a family history of prostate cancer or have metastatic prostate cancer, it is really important for you to have uh, your tumor profiled to see if it is sensitive to any number of novel agents, including two recently approved agents known as PARP inhibitors, Olaparib and Rucaparib. Both of them are oral agents that seem to work to control cancers that express the BRCA2 gene. So BRCA is breast cancer, one and two. Uh, this is a unique family of cancers uh, where mothers and uh, aunts and uh, uh, grandmothers may, for sisters, may have uh, breast and ovarian cancer, but uh, they're, they're, the men in the family who carry BRCA2 can also have prostate cancer. So knowing this may give us an alternative for other treatments down the line if your tumor expresses that. Also, there's a pattern known as microsatellite high, uh, or P10, that's T-E-N, loss, which also may help identify patients who may benefit from different treatments. And so there's a lot of data out there to suggest, and again, it's all investigational, but definitely that there may be in some situations, if your tumor expresses microsatellite high, it may be very responsive to a series of drugs called checkpoint inhibitors. If there's P10 loss, it may be uh, very uh, uh, sensitive to a completely different uh, category of drugs. Let me add two more, I think, important uh, pieces of information. And if you've learned one new thing today, then I will have done my job. Treatment of prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19. Uh, I have continued to treat my patients where it has been necessary to do so. People who have uh, uh, had COVID-19, uh, for example, patients, clearly at some point we they have to go into quarantine, but they are certainly amenable to continuing with their treatments. For patients who are so fearful of COVID-19, uh, you will find that it is very safe to give chemotherapy and that we have been doing it without any issue whatsoever. Uh, there does not appear to be any worsening risk, particularly given the fact that many chemotherapeutic agents tend to uh, not really drop the blood count sufficiently to warrant concern. So if you need treatment, 
please don't use your fear of COVID as a means to avoid treatment. If you need it, you need it, and that's basically it. I will just close with one final statement. There are a lot of different things out there to manage side effects, uh, discomfort, and pain from anesthesia pain service uh, where epidural injections or injections to a joint can be given to help relieve pain. We use radiation very frequently, as you will hear from Dr. McBride, and not to mention that there is the component of uh, being uh, active and having physical therapy often intercede earlier, as you will hear from Ms. Wilson. So I apologize that this is very brief. I'm happy to answer questions in a bit. And Carolyn, back to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. And uh, so much, you really managed to get so much information out to people in such a, um, a limited amount of time. It's amazing to me. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sean McBride. Dr. McBride is a radiation oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. McBride will be addressing the role of radiation in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, the types of radiation treatments, radiation treatment for bone metastasis and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. McBride. Thanks, Dr. Mesner. I appreciate uh, the introduction and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today uh, to discuss the role of radiation in uh, uh, metastatic prostate cancer. Um, so I, I think it, we have to divide metastatic prostate cancer into two categories. And the role that radiation plays in each of those two categories is quite different. <clears throat> the first category uh, uh, where radiation plays uh, an actually quite important role is in what's called oligometastatic prostate cancer. And this has a variety of definitions, but one of the most common definitions is, is men who have prostate cancer that spread to the bone with five or fewer <clears throat> prostate cancer tumors in the bone on a standard, on standard imaging, meaning a CT scan or a bone scan or occasionally an MRI. These can be men that are newly diagnosed with prostate cancer or men that have a, a, a recurrence of their prostate cancer after primary treatment to the prostate, namely surgery or radiation. Uh, so oligo, in, oligo, in newly diagnosed oligometastatic prostate cancer, Radiation plays an important role insofar as giving radiation to the prostate can extend a man's life. And that is a research finding that is relatively recent. Within the last two years, a large randomized controlled trial run out of the United Kingdom showed that men with low-volume metastatic disease, specifically men who have three or fewer sites of prostate cancer tumor in the bone, radiation to the prostate uh, extends a man's life compared to just doing hormone therapy alone. <clears throat> now, what kind of radiation was used in this trial? Well, there's two broad types of radiation. There's external radiation and there's internal radiation called brachytherapy. Brachytherapy we do not use in men with oligometastatic prostate cancer. So the type of radiation that we use is external beam radiation therapy. And <clears throat> oftentimes, this external beam radiation therapy is, is IMRT, meaning it's intensity modulated radiation therapy, and it's image-guided, meaning each day that you're getting your radiation, uh, we do a series of images, namely a low-dose CT scan, to make sure we're being as precise as we need to be. The length of the radiation can vary. Um, there's something called moderate hypofractionated radiation. And these are radiation treatments that are typically four to five weeks in length. And again, this radiation is just to the prostate. The alternative is what's called SBRT. Um, Cyberknife, something you probably hear about frequently, is a type of hardware that enables us to deliver SBRT, stereotactic body radiation therapy. This, instead of being four to five weeks, 
This is typically five treatments delivered over a couple weeks. Either one of those two treatment regimens, either the four to five week radiation regimen or the five treatments delivered over a couple week radiation regimen, both targeted to the prostate, are standards of care that can be offered to gentlemen who have a newly diagnosed oligometastatic prostate cancer, I mean prostate cancer just present in five or fewer locations. The second situation, oftentimes a situation that arises, a question that arises in men with newly diagnosed oligometastatic prostate cancer is, well, you, you say that you, there's evidence to target the prostate with radiation. What about the three or four tumors that are present in the bone? And certainly technically, this is quite easy to do. Oftentimes, we will target prostate cancer tumors in the bone with radiation that is one, three, or five treatments in length. Right now, there's not strong data to suggest that treating the bone metastases in addition to the prostate with radiation provides a benefit above and beyond just treating the prostate with radiation in men with oligometastatic disease. However, um, at our institution, in, in younger men, despite the relative paucity of data, we will oftentimes treat two or three, the two or three bone metastases that are present with radiation. But I, I want to emphasize that this is a question that is currently under study. The same physicians in the United Kingdom that ran the trial that showed the benefit of radiation to the prostate in men with oligometastatic disease are also looking at the benefit of adding radiation to the bone, to three or four bone metastases on top of prostate radiation in men with oligometastatic disease. So we hope soon in the next two to three years to have the answer as to how beneficial radiation to bone metastases is in men with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. The second category, the other subcategory, I should say, of men, <clears throat> of, of men with oligometastatic prostate cancer is men who were initially diagnosed with localized prostate cancer, who had their prostate cancer treated with radiation to the prostate or, to, uh, or surgery to remove the prostate, who then later have an oligometastatic recurrence, meaning their PSA rises, they have imaging, CT scan, a bone scan, and perhaps increasingly a PSMA PET scan that Dr. Slobin alluded to, and uh, and five or fewer bone metastases are discovered. Here, we actually have relatively good data that treating those bone metastases, limited bone metastases at the time of oligometastatic recurrent prostate cancer provides a benefit. Oftentimes, we'll combine this with hormone therapy, but sometimes in older men who have an oligometastatic recurrence after treatment of the prostate we will just irradiate the bone metastases and not treat with hormone therapy as a way to delay the initiation of hormone therapy. Again, the radiation treatment to the bone metastases in this oligorecurrent prostate cancer is anywhere from one to five treatments. So that's, the that's radiation's role in oligometastatic bone-only prostate cancer. One question that might arise is, well, is there benefit to treating the prostate with radiation in men or treating bone in men who have a prostate cancer that's spread to the, the lung or the liver? The answer to that is no. Even if it's spread to only one or two locations in what are called visceral organs, meaning lung or liver, there is no benefit to prostate-directed radiation in that case. Outside of oligometastatic prostate cancer, the other role for radiation in men with metastatic prostate cancer is in palliating or helping to reduce pain associated with prostate cancer tumors. So off, on occasion, a metastatic tumor in the bone can result in pain that leads to some degree of disability. Radiation treatment to the tumor that's in the bone that's responsible for those symptoms is a very effective way to eradicate that tumor and alleviate the pain. Uh, in men with more advanced prostate cancer that may have spread to a location in the lung uh, that's causing problems with breathing, again, a short course of radiation 
three to five treatments is a good way to kill that tumor and relieve the breathing difficulty that can be attributed to uh, a specific prostate cancer tumor in the lung. That's another important role for radiation. Um, again, at our institution, men receiving palliative radiation, meaning radiation meant to improve a symptom being caused by a particular prostate cancer tumor, that radiation is delivered in one to five treatments over um, anywhere from a single day to a week. Um, that, I think, covers the current role for radiation in metastatic prostate cancer, and I'll, I'll look forward to everyone's questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. McCry. That was really wonderful and very comprehensive, and uh, I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Donna Wilson. Ms. Wilson is a clinical fitness specialist, Integrative Medicine Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, founder and head coach, Empire Dragon Boat Team, uh, BCS, ACS. And Ms. Wilson will be addressing the role of physical activity. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wilson. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Um, yeah, I have been working with people with uh, any type of cancer and many men with prostate cancer for over 20 years now at Integrated Medicine. And I can tell you that exercise is first. I'm going to tell you it's safe. And it's safe to move. You know, we might have to modify things according to the level and the stage of disease that you're at, but most importantly, it's to move. And that is my tagline, keep moving. Um, the American Cancer Society and the American College of Chest Physicians, I mean, uh, sports medicine, has come up with that we should have people moving 150 minutes per week. And that could incorporate some movement, like biking, or it could be walking on the treadmill, or doing an elliptical, or walking in, in your home. We're going to talk about a little bit how you can exercise in view of this COVID situation. And resistance training. You know, the resistance training is good for many things, not only because I know with a lot of the treatments you get, you're losing muscle mass. And, of course, that makes uh, the muscles atrophy a little bit and you don't feel as well. Well, you, you can change that. I have worked with many, many men in the, over the years that we have changed them to get strong again and to feel like they have a better body image because they are physically strong. And it's consistency. You can do it either with weights or we can do it with elastic bands or we can do it with body weight exercises or we can do it isometrically. Um, and then there's also stretching in for the flexibility you have. And uh, the other side of that resistance training is for your bone health. Because some, many of you are on hormone therapy, um, sometimes you, you can get the problems with osteoporosis. So we really want to make sure that we do those extra bone um, strengthening exercises and putting exercise and muscle power onto the bone. I think the most important thing I can't stress enough is that I have seen dramatic changes in people when they start moving. I know that many of you get sort of paralyzed and become more sedentary with, you know, the diagnosis. But the truth of the matter is to improve your quality of life and to, and to decrease your anxiety, to decrease your fatigue, many times some of the pain is related to really very tense and tight muscles and tight ligaments and tendons. And then, then and you have muscle loss and you don't feel as well. And then all of a sudden you start to move and exercise, you feel better. We, can, we do, and many times I, I had a class at Integrated Medicine um, just for men for exercise, um, with exercise and pro with prostate cancer, and we did a lot of pelvic floor exercises because that many times can be a, an issue. I mean, there's so many things you can do. I really want to stress, too, one more thing, is that during this COVID time, in this last year, I still am seeing many, many patients, but I do a lot of Zoom classes. And I have up to 150 people on my Zoom classes. Um, all the men that used to be in my men's prostate cancer exercise program are there, and they're exercising with me four times a week. There's no reason you don't need a lot of space. You don't need to go to the gym. You can use do it in three feet of space. 
You can use a towel and do isometrics for your upper body. You can do squats to get all those large muscle groups. And as you know, the large muscle in your thigh, that quadricep, is the first muscle to get weak when we become sedentary. Then you can't get out of a chair. You can't do the basic things in life. So I think the, the most important thing is you can set yourself up and do a very simplistic, easy program by adding wall push-ups and getting down to chair push-ups or down on the floor, getting those large muscle groups, so push-ups, squats, you know, those kinds of things, walking in place or jogging in place, getting the heart rate up. Those are all the things, stair climbing, the easiest, simplest thing in the world, but a best cardiovascular exercise you can do. I can tell you collectively there has been research to show that People with prostate cancer, men with prostate cancer, have can improve their quality of life with exercise. So it's collectively inconsistent that the evidence has been quite compelling that we can improve the quality of your life um, during this time. So I will stop here. I want you to know that I am passionate about it and I have seen change in people and I know that it, the most important thing that you can remember and in your head remember Keep moving. Get up every hour. Do something. Even if it's walking up and down the stairs or doing 10, 10 needle lifts, but just keep moving. The less you move, the weaker you get, the tighter your muscles and ligaments and tendons get, and the less you can do. But a little bit of exercise can go a long, long way. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Ms. Wilson. I know that um, after hearing Ms. Wilson, many people have signs around where they live with her tagline, keep moving. And so I'm, I suspect that many of you, if you haven't done this already and haven't heard her speak before, you may start doing that too. And you'll, those signs really are wonderful reminders. So thank you. Thank you, Ms. Wilson. And now um, we do have time for... Um, we're going to take. We're actually now going to take some more questions. I'm actually going to do some more questions to all of you before we actually um, move on to the uh, questions. So I'm going to ask um, that we now uh, that you all just uh, participate in brief uh, polling questions that we have. And so, um, so just to see um, what you've learned uh, from today's program. So um, the first question is. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of new and emerging treatments for metastatic prostate cancer, including the role of precision medicine. And again, um, it's rating. So one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. Okay, and then the next, um, the next question is, um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident in accepting chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted treatments for the management of metastatic prostate cancer. And again, um, rating the highest is one, and the lowest rating is five. And then the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, with one being the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then we just have a few more questions for you. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in knowing what to do to manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain. Again, one is the highest rating, and five is the lowest rating. And... Uh, just two more questions. As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team in the treatment and care of bone metastases with one, the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And then the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I plan to work with my healthcare team to include physical activity in dealing with metastatic prostate cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. 
I just want to thank you all for participating in this in these questions. It's really terrific. Um, and um, we're now going to return to um, our program. Um, thank you all for for doing this. Um, and before we do take your questions, um, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I just want to make you all aware of the services of Cancer Care that you can access. Um, as Cancer Care offers free national programs and services to all of you um, throughout the uh, country, throughout the United States. And actually, those services include uh, support um, from our oncology social work staff. Um, they also include online support groups. They also include practical financial and case management assistance with some of your questions and concerns that you may have. And our case management services are quite unique in the sense that if you're having some issues in accessing your care or getting the type of care that you need or financial assistance, you're able to actually, our staff will be able to find resources for you and will be able to help you to get those resources and will work with you until you have the resources you need. We also offer these education workshops, really quite a few, um, you know, uh, of these um, of these um, workshops throughout the year, um, about I think 75 of them uh, altogether throughout the year. And we also do offer publications as well. So there's lots of information you can access from Cancer Care and that you can also access from many other uh, cancer organizations as well. And now we do have time for questions from all of you. So I'm going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions and we're gonna take as many of your questions as possible, Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So we have quite a few questions coming in from our um, online participants, and I'm going to start with... Um, so for Dr. Sloven, can you discuss the prostate cancer subtype gene SPOP mutation. GSPOP, SPOP. It is a rare mutation. Uh, it's thought to be involved with androgen dysregulation, and it remains unclear if it is uh, associated with a more aggressive kind of cancer. We see it in patients who have CDK12 biallelic loss. But more than that, it's not exactly up on the radar of uh, things to be concerned about at the present time. Okay, excellent. Um, and um, the other question is, um, uh, what is um, a logo? Um, is that Dr. Um, McBride or just that Dr. Sloven? I have no idea what logo is. O-L-O-G-O. Oligo. Oligo. Sean? Oh, yeah. So oligo, oligo metastatic prostate cancer is basically prostate cancer that spread to only a few locations in the bone. So a few is typically defined as less than five uh, areas of, of prostate cancer tumors in bone on what we would describe as conventional imaging, meaning a bone scan, a CT scan, and sometimes an MRI. That's the, that's the generally accepted definition. Okay, excellent. And um, for um, Dr. McBride, what is the name of the UK study um, that you referenced? Uh, the name of the study is called the Stampede Study. It's a multi. It's a. It's a, a multi. What's called a multi-stage, multi-arm trial, uh, and one of the uh, components of the trial looked at prostate-directed radiation in men with what they described as low-volume metastatic disease. First author is Nick James. Thank you. Um, and. Uh, this question is probably for both you, um, Dr. Sullivan and Dr. McBride. Is there a treatment that is more prone to long-term toxicity? What does this depend on? 
It's a it's a it's a good question. The only reason I'm hesitating is that it really depends. I mean, every every treatment that we could possibly give you, even if it's radiation uh, or chemotherapy or hormones, have associated side effects. Now, if we want to really call them toxicity, everybody is very different in their sensitivities. Uh, it's interesting. I had a gentleman who was about 82 and had to go on hormonal therapy, and he read the side effect profile. Now, mind you, none of the the, the treatment was the treatment was not going to really take effect for at least another two or three weeks in terms of dropping his testosterone. He read all the associated side effects, and in, within the 14 hours since I gave him the information, he called the office with every one of the treatment associated side effects, which could not really have been the case. A lot depends on other medical conditions that a person may have. It's very common to have fatigue from hormonal therapy as well as chemotherapy and even uh, radiation because sometimes people have to sit on a table for a long period of time can be tiring, not because of direct effect on what you're doing, it's because you're sitting in one place for a long period of time. I would say that for most of the treatments we give in oncology, they're really all very well tolerated. Clearly, somebody who's very frail and ill from other for other reasons uh, may not be able to tolerate the treatment as well as other uh, conditions, and therefore, sometimes we have to uh, reduce the dose or reduce the treatment time in order to get them through the same treatment that other people may just breeze through. Sean, do you have any other comments about uh, toxicity? No, Susan, I think that's, uh, that's well put and comprehensive. And actually, there's a question along those lines about um, taking a, uh, let's see, uh, a lot of um, online questions here. Um, it's about taking a, it's kind of a holiday from um, uh, extensive treatment. Could you comment on that, Dr. Sullivan? Someone who's had extensive treatment. And- I There is nothing wrong with taking a drug holiday provided that it is safe and it's done under supervision. Uh, I would not recommend taking a drug holiday if someone's cancer is growing and it's first getting a treatment and it's sort of equivocal whether it's it's become stable or not. I certainly would not do it if the person is having symptoms, but any and all discussions really should be with your medical oncologist or radiation doctor or whomever is treating you to get a sense of uh, the risks of, of discontinuing treatment for a period of time. I know that very often sometimes patients have made uh, plans. Uh, they're going through, let's say, primary radiation therapy, or they may be getting radiation for pain control, and I think uh, that's another scenario where we really don't like treatment to be interrupted, but uh, Dr. McBride, your thoughts on radiation being interrupted, for example? You know, typically we would recommend we would recommend strongly against uh, radiation being interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, part of the efficacy, the effectiveness of radiation depends on the relatively rapid delivery of the treatment. So if your doctor were to prescribe four to five weeks of radiation and you were to take a week break, uh, that could decrease the effectiveness of the radiation. That's something we always try to avoid. Excellent. And um, and then the question, what is the best scan for detecting bone metastasis? That is a great question. Uh, no, this has been <laughs> this has been under discussion for so many years, and a number of imaging modalities have been looked at. One of the concerns uh, about bone scan is that we are using a source of radiation that may not be easily acquired anymore, which is why other modalities have been looked into, including FDG PET scans and more recently the PSMA uh, PET scans. They have not replaced anything yet. We're still acquiring data. Uh, One certainly can do an MRI. One can do a CT. CT is not as good as as, uh, 
either MRI or some of these PET imaging uh, scans in terms of uh, looking for bone lesions. The PSMA PET scans are not really a standard of care as yet for patients who have metastatic disease or as a screening tool. It's used in a very specific clinical indication, which is usually post-prostatectomy, although on clinical protocol in California, as I've mentioned, it has been used in the pre-prostatectomy state, so it's still not for looking for people who have metastatic disease. So to answer your question, bone scan still remains the standard of care. It has not as yet been replaced by formally by any other imaging modality, although we continue to pursue our interest in that. Thank you. And um, uh, Norma, I think we have a question from uh, Herman. Um, Herman, ask your line is open. Uh, yes. Do I just ask the question on the phone? Yes, sir. By yes. all means, we can hear you loud and clear. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, what are you sorry yes, about? I want to hear uh, your question. <laughs> okay. I'm a 12-year metastatic prostate cancer survivor. Uh, initially, I was given two weeks to a month to survive and have been blessed. Recently, my PSAs have undulated from 0.12 to 0.33, and I'm just wondering uh, what my options are. Um, tried to get a, a, a Gallium 68, the PSMA, PSMA PET scan. Uh, in clinical trial at Duke University, but it was canceled due to COVID. And uh, whether uh, that PSMA uh, PET scan may show some microscopic cancer that could be treated by radiation or, uh, or some other modality. I'm sorry to be so complex here. Thank no, you. you have a great question, and please understand what I say is not going to be necessarily specific for you, but just in general. First of all, the PSMA scan can't detect something that is microscopic. Even though it has wonderful sensitivity and specificity, it can only see something with a certain level of detectability. But microscopic, you would need a microscope. So it, it can't pick up tiny little things that can't be seen by the naked eye. It's only things that we can see with the naked eye. And it's based on what we call SUV, standardized uptake value, and, and the way the radiation is sort of counted. And that, that's what tells us, but it's not microscopic. The... But what, what you describe, sir, is what we call a biochemical relapse, which means that the only indication that your disease is active once again, now I didn't say metastatic, but is active once again, is a PSA that has returned post-surgery. Now, I'm assuming that's all you've had and no radiation previously, but when people have a biochemical relapse, there are several imaging modalities that we do do, although what you mentioned about the PSMA is still not standard. It's considered investigational, and it only will pick up any malignant cells that have PSMA on their surface, and there still could be prostate cells that don't have it, have that marker on its surface as well. But the standards of care have always been doing an MRI to look at the area where the prostate had been to see if there's any possible regrowth of the prostate cancer. Uh, usually for the PSMA scans, you need a PSMA, a PSA, excuse me, of decimal point two in order to get on the clinical trials. Uh, we have an, what we call an Axiomin scan, which is a kind of PET scan, but again, insurance will only cover it if your PSA is 2. So standard of care have usually been the MRI and maybe a bone scan or a CAT scan just to make sure there's no evidence of any disease outside of the area of the where the disease had been. Standards of care have been a combination of radiation, and Dr. McBride can weigh in on that, with uh, usually a combination of hormonal therapy and another uh, oral hormone agent that seems to give not only best local control, but actually uh, will control the disease for a period of time, hopefully forever. Dr. McBride, do you want to just add on to the salvage nature of radiation? 
Yeah. So I think if, if a guy has a biochemical recurrence after, if he's opted for surgery at initial diagnosis and has what's called a biochemical recurrence, meaning a detectable PSA, because after surgery, you should have an undetectable PSA. So if he has a detectable PSA that's rising and is in the decimal point two or 0 0.2 uh, range, then, um, then the first thing we typically do, as Dr. Slovin alluded to, is get some imaging try to locate uh, the recurrence, but typically because it is microscopic, meaning you can't see it with the naked eye and thus can't see it on imaging, um, we, uh, we don't see anything. Uh, but we know that the cancer is potentially still curable if it's confined to the prostate bed and the nearby lymph nodes and if we treat it with radiation to those two locations. And so we make an educated estimation that the prostate cancer is confined to that area and then deliver radiation to the prostate bed and to the nearby lymph nodes, oftentimes in combination with a short course, four to six months of anti-testosterone medication or hormone therapy. That is a, a, uh, a, a very good option for men who've got a biochemical recurrence after, prostate after surgery where the imaging either doesn't show anything or it just shows prostate cancer uh, limited to the prostate bed or the nearby lymph nodes. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And we have another question from... Uh, Next question comes from Ron R. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I must feel a little better now about the information you've given me. I have like two quick, short questions. Um, once you have um, recurrence and you have a prostate out and radiation, you still have biochemical failure, you put you on hormone treatment, and you still now have a rising PSA after two years, and that's where I am right now, is it brought it down to undetectable, but now it's rising. It's almost up to point, point 0.6 now. All the studies I show, and it probably shouldn't get online too much until you ver um, validate where the information is coming from, but they seem like they give you another drug like epilutamide along with your with your uh, hormone treatment and or any other kind of drug combined. doesn't really show very – it's not very promising. It's almost – you know, it doesn't show like it's it buys you much time at all. It seems like it's like always like a thirty month uh, clinical trial or something. And with the drug, it gives you an extra four months, and without it's slightly thirty. It's almost within the margin of error, which is so discouraging. It doesn't seem like all these other drugs after you have a recurrence that really anything really helps much. And the other question is, what actually kills you when you have prostate cancer? I mean, I have just in two of my bones. I feel fine. But what actually kills you? I mean, it seemed like I'd have to have a lot more going on in my organs to actually kill me. <laughs> Brian, well, yeah. thank you. That's an excellent question. Uh, I think um, I'm going to ask Dr. Slovin to address this in a general way. Um, and then we, of course, advise you to go back to your treating healthcare team. But Dr. Slovin, if you could address this. Okay, let, let me... Uh... <laughs> No, no one quite has asked me that question in that way, but I, I salute your candor and I appreciate it and I, I hope you're, you're feeling well, but I do understand your anxiety. I hear this quite a bit. Uh, what I'm going to tell you is death from prostate cancer competes from death of, from natural causes. And you would be amazed at people who pass away as a result of uh, a heart attack, uh, a stroke, they broke a hip, uh, they had a bypass operation, or they fell and they sustained some major injury. Believe it or not, that's what we see from the age of 70 onward. Very hard to predict. Uh, it is really very rare that if I do have somebody dying of prostate cancer, it's, uh, it can be any number of reasons why uh, the patient may have other uh, intercurrent problems. They could have a pulmonary embolism. They could have a blood clot. They may need an operation for something completely different. I don't see that many people really dying of or from prostate cancer, but if those have prostate cancer, it's usually due to what we call marrow suppression. They have so much disease in their bone that the cancer cells are replacing the normal elements that would be able to maintain uh, the normal level of uh, your hemoglobin and white cells. So people sort of drift and they may need transfusions. 
that's one possibility. And as I said, these are all rare. Uh, the second possibility is if somebody develops disease in the liver, another very, very, very rare site. And it's usually in a patient who has an unusual form of prostate cancer. But, you know, sometimes, again, here, too, you're replacing the normal liver aspects. And as a result, the liver doesn't function and, and people fail. I mean, organs do fail, but we really don't see it that much in prostate cancer. So if I have to take book on it, I always say death from natural causes will supervene before death from prostate cancer. In answer to your first question, and I, I apologize if I'm sounding as if I'm, you know, uh, monopolizing the conversation, but the issue of the PSA, I, I can't get excited. If, you, if you're on hormonal therapy right now, uh, in the setting of metastatic bone disease, and your PSA is a whopping six. I, re I really can't get excited about that. I, I deal with people who have PSAs of 23,000. What you're reading in the literature is based on medians. The, it, it's looking at a very large population of people, and just from a biostatistical standpoint, showing overall benefit. But that doesn't mean you only have four more months uh, to live. It just means that if you're looking at the statistics, this is what it's showing compared with other drugs. But we do know that patients can live years on certain treatments. I mean, all these drugs, apalutamide, enzalutamide, abiraterone, docetaxel, cabazitaxel, PARP inhibitors, checkpoint inhibitors, all of those are amazing in the responses that they can uh, provide in patients and giving the lives living longer. So I would not be hooked on this idea, I only have four months to live, what's the, what's the reason to even continue? Believe me, I mean, if you, I, I've had patients five years on certain drugs, and if A doesn't work, and you turn it around, and then B will work. And I would not be at all disparaging anything about that, that, that whole idea. That's the whole purpose. Years ago, we only had one drug, and when that drug didn't work, people died. Now people are living longer. I, I when I first started in this field, I never had people go 25 years living with prostate cancer and dying of something else. One of my patients was told he would be dead in five years, and yet he went 23 years and died of problems with his kidney for poorly controlled blood pressure. So all I'm saying is please don't take the words as gospel. They're really meant for us as physicians to get a sense of comparison between drugs. But the reality is people live a heck of a lot longer than what is said into the literature. Oh, Sorry to be long-winded there. I think that's probably very helpful. Um, I hope that's helpful to you, Ron. Please do feel free to contact us at Cancer Care with further questions you may have, and also, of course, speaking to your healthcare team. But I hope that you all get that message very clearly that, indeed, what Dr. Sullivan has said is that actually um, the treatments are so advanced now and so different than um, in you know in previous years, so that we don't want people to feel that um, we do these programs because we want people to know about all the new treatments that are available. Um, and, and I guess um, the, the takeaway for all of you, so I'm going to ask each of our speakers to, um, to, to actually end with a, perhaps a takeaway from today's program, which might be helpful to everyone to hear. So I'm going to start with um, Dr. Sloven, if you would just go first with just a brief takeaway that everyone, we want people to take away from today's program. I would say that there are so many new treatments out there that uh, there's absolutely no cause for people to be worried about their survival. The other thing is that clinical trials still remain a very important aspect of the treatment armamentarium with an opportunity to have things that really could change your life early on in the disease as opposed to waiting later on. So always consider a clinical trial. Excellent. And, and, and Dr. McBride, do you want to add anything in terms of also your takeaway to the audience of what you'd like them to, a high point that you'd like them to remember from your yeah, perspective? Yeah, I think uh, the, one thing, the one thing I would emphasize, emphasize is the uh, increasing utility of radiation in men who have oligometastatic disease, whether it's newly diagnosed, whether it's after primary surgery, and even uh, whether it's after progression on hormone therapy. Uh, very targeted, very precise radiation to the limited number of active metastases uh, can uh, can provide uh, durable control uh, and minimize uh, morbidity. 
uh, and, uh, and, 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 and keep guys on, on treatments that they're tolerating uh, quite well. Excellent. And uh, Ms. Wilson, do you have any comment there, your takeaway? Um, I would like to say with the treatments being improved and longevity being there, um, make sure that you use exercise as part of your, your medicine and part of your program um, and to keep moving because, you know, if you don't, I mean, then just the aging process of the body, you know, and you then you don't move and you don't you might fall or you have paid balance but just doing a, just a even 10 minutes a day i would suggest to keep moving and exercise and any questions please just let me know thank you keep moving Excellent. keep moving that's a very good point and i'm just going to also say to everyone that um there is great uh, I guess just get light at the end of the tunnel that you were hearing here today about where we are today in, uh, in, uh, with the, from all of our physicians on the call and from Ms. Wilson and uh, from my perspective as a social worker too, that basically there is a lot out there for you. Please work with your healthcare team. Um, and I think as Dr. Slovin said, the literature is one thing, but what you want to talk to your physician about you and what is best for you, that's really what, what you need to do. Um, that's incredibly important. And um, also, I do want, this is a, we, you are all living in a very complex time at this time in the world, and we do want you to be sure that you do take advantage of of your health care, that you go in for your visits, that you see your doctors, um, that you uh, take advantage of um, the telehealth, telemedicine appointments as well when you have questions and concerns. Those are very powerful meetings with your doctor, um, as well as um, to take advantage of all the support um, that you can get, the support groups, the, um, the chance to talk with someone on the phone. Those are all very important interventions as well so that you can carry on with your treatment and with your family in terms of your life and all that's important to you. As we conclude the program today, and I know that um, there are many, many more questions in queue. This is a very large group today, and so we were not able to take everyone's question, but I hope that you got the sense that, that there's... Um, there's a lot out there for you, and we want you to be sure that you benefit from all the advances that have occurred. And that's why we do this program today. Um, we want you to actually be sure to um, to know that treatments have changed, the world is different now, and that we want you to, to access the very best care. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.